Good morning. We continue in our, our study of uh, our fall series. We call, it, we call it Reset. It's really about how do you change deeply? How do you change in a way that uh, goes at the root of your spiritual issues? And this week we're talking about the, the way that pride sabotages our change project. As we begin to try to move forward, the issues of our spiritual pride get in the way. Now, we've been looking at certain passages of Scripture that speak very clearly about the issue of pride. The passage in James is probably the most direct of all these passages. In James chapter 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. This is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. So pride then is the enemy of repentance. Uh, Pride, in many ways, is what puts us in an oppositional relationship with God's desires for our life. In that book that we've been using a lot, You Can Change, by Tim Chester, he says, Pride isn't just a sin. It's part of the definition of sin. Pride puts us in the place of God. We turn from our chief end of glorifying God and make our chief end glorifying ourselves. That is why humility is so important. To humble ourselves is to repent of our behaviors and attitudes that glorify ourselves. Chester is really right on this, but if you take it a step further, you realize what God God is saying in his word, what what the Spirit inspired James to, to write, says, When you make your life about glorifying yourself or you make your life about how you're going to take your glory-empty self and make it a glory-filled self, then God becomes a means to that end instead of the source or the end in itself. See, God is not going to, according to James, he's not going to resource the glory that you're trying to get from this world, he will actually oppose it. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride actually sets us up for the fall, to fall. In the message translation, first pride, then the crash. The bigger the ego, the harder the fall. James is saying that as well, that pride sets us up for a fall while humility invites God to lift us up. This has to be one of the hardest uh, hardest aspects of our change project is the waiting on God, trusting that as I'm humbling myself, he's going to he's going to lift me up. He's going he's going to redeem the places of of pain. He's going to redeem the places of failure. He's going to redeem the losses. And, and yet that's exactly what James is saying. He's saying, it, it's almost counterintuitive. 
I want to lift myself up so my glory empty self becomes a glory filled self. But the way up is actually down. That as I humble myself, then God, in a permanent way, God, in a valuable way, will lift me up. And and he will do it at the appropriate time. But pride resists this. And then it finds itself in opposition with God and God in opposition with us. In other words, even as we are wanting to change, the change itself must be submitted to God. Or even the changes that we think are so important, God will oppose. There are things in my life, I don't know you know, if any of you have done this, but there were resolutions I've made, there are changes that I said I'm going to make or whatever, and I found no grace to make those changes. I'll give you a, a, just a little taste of this from my own life. I remember when I was wanting to pray and learning to pray, and, I, and some of it, yes, I was doing out of excellent motives. Others of it, I was just doing it so I could get something from God. Not so I could get God, but so I could get something from God. And I remember thinking, wow, if, if I fast, you know, if I fast, then, then God will know I'm serious. And so I went into seasons of fasting or times of fasting. And as soon as I... As soon as I did, I got grumpy, I got irritable. My family were like, you know, Mike, stop. You're, you're, you're so much worse off. See, I thought if I just did the spiritual discipline of fasting, that would be enough. But I wasn't, I wasn't humbling myself. I wasn't seeking God. I was seeking something from God. I was using the fasting as a means to get um, what I wanted. And so instead of praying, I was demanding. And then as I began to understand that you know, whatever I was doing, it, it had to be a humbling of myself, of leaving the results up to God. I wasn't praying towards an outcome. I was praying to get deeper into fellowship with God. And I remember going on a three-day fast, and the grace was there. The grace to fast. Um, I didn't even, in a way, I didn't want food because I wanted God so much. And the, the, the hunger pangs wouldn't make me irritable or cranky or hangry, I think people call it. Instead, they would just lead me into deeper fellowship and deeper intimacy with God. You see, it's so, you, you, I was doing the exact same thing, but one was out of pride, selfish ambition, vainglory. The other was out of, out of, I want you, God. And the only result I'm looking for is you. Listen what, listen what James goes on to say. He says, submit yourselves then to God. This is, this is so essential before you start to deal with even the devil. It says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. The, the process is first and foremost that why I'm doing what I'm doing comes out of humility. See, change without humility is a much bigger problem than we realize. We even have to have this reset about our pride and our humility. James shows us that that when you're a friend of the world, when when you and, and in a way, you see, you become a friend of the world because you're looking for your glory from the world. You become an enemy with God. Pride is 
makes us flirt, dangerous flirtations with the world. There is within us now the very spirit of Christ, the very spirit of God. And it says he jealously longs for his spirit to manifest, to work in us and for us to stop resisting his spirit, but to actually choose in and submit to the spirit. He jealously longs for you to choose humility. And that humility will lead to deeper intimacy. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Though repentance is a hard thing for us to do, there is a simplicity. We want to be proud, which is to live for our own glory, to be our own sources, for God to be our assistant. That's what the rest of the world is doing. But James is saying, but don't you want to humble yourself and live for God's glory? The choice you make is so important that James makes us see that friendship with the world is a form of spiritual adultery. It's not just breaking the rules. It's not just some issue of sin. It is a spiritual adultery. Now, I want to give you an example from the scriptures that lets us see how dangerous, how dangerous pride is and, and... why we're kind of harping on it this we were focusing on it because pride is no friend to any of us even though it has been our protector it's been our provider you know trying to protect our our ego our sense of self it's not good at either of those things in daniel chapter 4 you have this this amazing story uh the uh the people of Judah have been taken off into captivity in Babylon. The leader of the Babylonian empire is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man in the world at that point. He has a dream in Daniel 4. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, this is around the 6th century BC. Nebuchadnezzar, was a ma- he was the master of every part of the world that he knew of. He built the city of Babylon. This was one of the most fascinating cities because not only was it clean, it was green. He he built uh, skyscraper buildings, but he built them with these hanging gardens that filtered the air so that the air in Babylon was clean and the streets were clean. It was it was it was one of the wonders of the world at his time. But having built such an empire and built such a city as a monument to himself, at the very pinnacle of his power, his whole life falls apart. Now, one of the most intriguing things about this story is at the end of this story, he's actually glad that his life fell apart. See, what he had was, he had pride, but it's more than just having pride. He had a, it was a spiritual cancer in his soul, and he could not get it out. This corruption of pride in his soul had its grip on him. See, what Daniel 4 shows us is pride is a root issue. I, I, I know of people who say, well, I have no pride. And I'm like, Actually, if you really read the scriptures and understand the wisdom of God, to believe you do not have pride is the first symptom of pride. 
That's how deceptive pride is. It's so integrated into people's personality and so integrated into their pain that when you touch their pain, you touch their pride. When you touch their pride, you touch their pain. And so Nebuchadnezzar, the great city builder, empire leader, he could not, he could not have anybody touch his pride. But God began to disturb his sleep. This is an interesting thing. Is is basically the God who loves you will not allow you to be comfortable in your pride. He loves you so much he will not allow you to be comfortable in your pride. And so for twelve months, Nebuchadnezzar's sleep, his sleep of pride, was being disturbed. The most powerful man in the world, with everything at his disposal, could not sleep. In verse four of Daniel four. Nebuchadnezzar recounts, he says, I was in my palace, I was content and prosperous. Then I had a dream. A voice from heaven comes and says, cut down the tree. And then a declaration is made, the most high is sovereign over all the earth. Finally, he calls for Daniel. And Daniel comes in and he interprets the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the tree a humbling is about to happen. You're about to be cut down. And he says, he says to Nebuchadnezzar this, you, you need to listen. But you see, the pride of Nebuchadnezzar, like I, I said yesterday, the pride keeps you from your vision of God, but pride also keeps you from hearing truth because you can't hear what you don't want to hear. So in his pride, he says, <laughs> No one's going to cut me down. Look at my accomplishments. Look at my success. He went out on the window of his skyscraper and his beautiful hanging gardens. And he says, look, I'm content. I'm prosperous. No one is, be- no one is higher up than me. But you see, even though he knew what it was to be at the very top, his soul was so much bigger than even his empire. See, the the whole in the soul is bigger than an empire. If you're, you know, if you're Nebuchadnezzar and and you've not learned how to fill the empty, the glory empty space with the glory of God, then the whole is still not filled and it will always be troubled. Pride does not let us sleep. But in this picture, God is merciful. Though Nebuchadnezzar does not listen, though he looks upon all of his accomplishments and says, no one is greater than me, God is merciful. God continues to speak to you just like he did Nebuchadnezzar. And he speaks about your pride. There'll be dreams, there'll be circumstances, there'll be irritating people, annoying people he puts into your life, circumstances outside of your control. But the issue is, at the heart of pride, will you listen? Will you listen to what the Spirit is trying to do? Nebuchadnezzar chose not to. See, there's a, there's a healthy way that you both provide for your, your, your sense of self and your life. There's a healthy way, but that healthy way is always through faith in what God has promised and what God has to say about you. This is why... So many today are are talking about identity so much. It's because 
in a sense, the root or the foundation of, of a healthy self is when the identity is no longer one you've achieved, but by faith it's the one you've received as a son or a daughter. And, and, and I'm not saying like giving lip service to that or just intellectual assent. I'm talking about learning to trust from the deepest core of your being that you don't have to be in control because you're a son or a daughter of God. You don't have to worry about whether or not things will work together for good because you are a son or daughter of God. You don't have to worry about is there enough glory to go around because God is glorious enough because you are a son or a daughter of the living God. See, you're not an accident. You are not only a purpose and have a purpose for your life, but you are purposed by God. But as we look at Nebuchadnezzar, there's a pride in each of us that must be humbled. Here's what Nebuchadnezzar said. I did it. This life that I have is for me, and it was wrought by me. One of the ways that you begin to realize pride is how, is how you compare yourselves to others and what that does to you. Sometimes you, you'll be around people and you think, you know, I'm smarter than those people. Or you look at people who are better off than you, and you go, but I worked harder than those people. It's always interesting that, that pride wants it to be comparative. I'm better, I'm smarter, I work harder. That, that, that is often how you can distinguish that the issue is pride and not just trying to understand your own gifts and your own calling and your own purpose. But when you look and you say, I, I'm smarter than that person. I, I, one of the hardest things when you're uh, preparing for ministry, when I, when I was a young man and uh, preparing for ministry, going to Bible college, learning Greek, learning Hebrew, learning to preach, then going to seminary, getting my master's. You know, I, every church I ever went to, when I, was, when I was studying, I was always critiquing the pastor. I was always critiquing his sermon. I wasn't really letting the ministry minister to me. I was comparing myself to the minister. And, and more often than not, I had this prideful sense because I, I, I had more, you know, in some ways, I, I had more confidence in my, in my gifting or more confidence in my intellect or my abilities than I actually had character. And I did not realize how much pride there was in me. But, but almost every time I would go and listen to someone, I'd say, I could do that better. Oh, you know, I'm so much smarter than this person. I'm so much more prepared than this person. I'm, I'm more with it than this person. And, and I was so blinded. Here I was, you know, 23, 24 years old, thinking I'm so much better than these other people. I'm so much smarter. I could do that so much better. What, what arrogance, what pride there was. And, and nothing was touching it in, in my seminary training, in, in, you know, in, in all that was going on in preparing for ministry. Nothing was touching that pride. And so the fact that God had to humble me, had to bring me low, was the only way I could, I could begin to see. Do you see how many attitudes are there? that are oppositional to God and, and destructive for, for me and for my future. In my experience, God has not allowed me to move forward in success or in results without first and foremost 
dealing with my character. You see, once he starts to deal with your character, you see all these places that pride makes demands on God, on others, on life. Like many people will say, I am owed something better than the life I have. Or, or I've been around people who say, I have everything that I have is because I worked so hard. I was so smart. You know, I took advantage of my opportunities. Those are all prideful things. But I've also been around people who said, I don't have, life is harder for me than others. I'm certainly owed something better. And they live in resentment. See, spiritual pride in no way ever really provides for you and it never protects you. But it always says, I should have more. I'm owed more. See, one way that you you can look at pride is pride claims to be the author of what is completely a gift. Pride claims to be the author of what is completely a gift. In other words, it's a spiritual plagiarism. So it's as if I'm saying, I am writing my life, but I don't, I don't acknowledge that everything I'm writing is being given to me by the true author. I'm taking credit for what the author is writing. See, one of the things that if you really, like, you're serious about your Christian life and you're serious about change, you have to realize that everything outside of hell itself is the grace of God. To constantly think I deserve better, that life should go better for me, that these things shouldn't happen to me. It is so hard for us to get to the place to realize Like the old theologian said it this way, he said, anything outside of you being nailed to the cross and paying for your sins for all eternity is the grace of God because Jesus became a curse for you. All of the sin, all of the sinfulness, all of your sickness, all of your emotional pain, all of it, he became. So that the punishment that you deserved, he would receive and the reward that he deserves you would receive he received the treatment you deserved so that now you can receive the treatment that he deserves but one of the issues is we don't realize what mercy god shows to us in other words he doesn't give us what we deserve and we don't realize what grace god shows us that he's gifting us all the time a life we do not deserve Pride is spiritual plagiarism. It's claiming to be the author of that which was given to you as a gift. Now, here's Nebuchadnezzar, one of the greatest military leaders. He was the greatest political leader of his time. But at one point in that dream, God says, I'm the author, not you. And now I'm going to own my work. And, and he begins... He begins to lose control involuntarily. But you and I can say, look, I'm tired of this pride stuff. It's not helping me. It's not my friend. Everything I own, everything I am is from God. To do that means to surrender control. This is, this is why James says submitting to God. See, it has to be a willingness to say, I give up control of the outcomes. I give up control of the results. I give up control of you know, the circumstances and the people in my life, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to submit to God. I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe God's promises for me. Pride 
will blind you to how dependent you are on him, but humility will say, I'm completely dependent on him. Pride makes you say, I'm the one who determines what's right, what's true, and what's fair. But humility says, no, God decides what's right. God decides what's fair. God decides what's true, and I trust him, and I submit to his careful hand. See, pride seduces you to become more uh, than you can actually become so that then you begin to fake or present a, uh, you know, yourself as a person who, who is more than you actually are. And so when we get really humbled, it is amazing how much capacity you have then because you're no longer competing with people for the same glory. You're no longer competing with people to fill your glory empty self. Rather, what happens is you're filled with the compassion of Jesus and that compassion makes you most godlike while you are most human in every way. So to heal our pride, it's a spiritual thing. It's not merely psychological. It's not simply emotional. It is why submitting to God and saying, God, heal my pride. This is, again, where confession of pride is consent to the Holy Spirit to be the power to change. But it's more than just the power of change that we need. It's the healing. We're not machines who are fixed. We're persons who have to be healed. Recognizing and, and committing again with all your heart, putting a stake in the ground that says, I am the object of God's mercy. When Nebuchadnezzar was broken and he saw that the almighty God was the mighty one, was the sovereign one, not him, he thanked God and he said, I would never have seen, I would never have seen this cancer in my soul. I would never have seen the corruption of my soul. And he actually was joyful that the mighty hand of God was actually a friend taking him down to the ground, grounding him, taking him from his high-flying perch, even from his highest skyscraper, bringing him down to the ground so they could see that he was not the Almighty. He was not the Sovereign. This was the mercy of God. But our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ is the Sovereign, is the mighty one, was over the whole universe. Nothing was made that was not made by him. And yet he humbled himself, not taking hold and grasping his title, but he let it all go. Here he is on the cross, pierced, disfigured, less than he was so that we might become all that he is. This world, this world which had rejected and turned against God, this world is the very world that God himself humbled himself in the person of Jesus Christ so that he could save this world. If I can just put it this way, spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, to achieve our own sense of self-worth, and to find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. The normal human ego is built on something besides God. But the fact of the matter is, our egos are hurt. They're wounded. They're less than they can be. You know, no part of your body draws attention to itself 
if something's not hurt. You don't say, oh, I have a good elbow this morning. You only notice your elbow if it's hurting. You know, people sometimes say, "Feeling my, you hurt my feelings. But feelings really can't be hurt. It's the ego that hurts, my sense of self, my identity. When you turn and you say, thank you, thank you for pressing me down. Thank you for bringing me low. Then you are ready not only to be healed, but to be lifted up, to be exalted. This is why we go after our pride in this way. And we say, Lord, I have pride. And I consent that you will be my healer, my power to change. And you are my reason for change, your mercy and your grace. I will not live a life of spiritual plagiarism. I will not live a life of spiritual adultery. Everything I have has come from your hand. My purpose, my meaning, and my eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.